Revolution is inevitability. There's a limit to every man's ability to take shit from elected cabinets filled with prejudice, bias, and bigotry. Viciously taxing the poor, trying to ensure big bank liquidity. Tell the bourgeois when injustice is law, the right to resist become responsibility. You see it happening from Cairo to Tripoli, public unrest, anti West hostility, self immolation, pyrotechnically ignites a nation to regain. Civility is that what it takes? Push a man till he breaks and take when dignity. When they meet them eyes up, people gonna rise up. Man, Babylon is a high probability. Everybody jump up. Everybody move up. Everybody jump up. Everybody move up. Welcome everybody to the Housing First Podcast. I'm your host, Kara Burrell, and my very special guest today is Dr. Sam Zambaris, the founder of the Housing First model and the founder of Pathways Housing First, an organization based in New York City working towards ending homelessness via Housing First. You can find their website at pathwayshousingfirst.org. Initially, Dr. Dr. Sam founded Pathways to Housing in New York City in 1992 based on the belief that housing is a human right, because it is, and at Pathways, uh, Dr. Sam developed the consumer-driven and evidence-based Housing First model that provides immediate access to permanent supportive housing to individuals who are homeless and who have mental health and addiction problems. Dr. Sam now also leads Pathways Housing First, which trains direct service organizations, conducts research projects, and influences policy related to Housing First. Dr. Sambaris is also on the faculty of the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia University Medical Center, he is currently participating in National Studies of Homelessness, Mental Illness, and Addiction, and has published numerous articles and book chapters on these topics, including the Housing First Manual. Dr. Simbaris is continuously engaging with communities and agencies considering Pathways model nationally and around the world. Welcome to the show, Dr. Simbaris. Hi, very nice to be with you, Kara. Thank you for being here. First, I'd like to say how cool it is and um, how grateful I am that the person who invented the model to end homelessness that I named this podcast after is speaking with me today. So that's awesome. Thank you very much for being here. <laughs> My pleasure. I, I was actually pleasantly surprised to see that you named the broadcast Housing First. How did that come to be, if you don't mind my asking? So I was just researching um, homelessness and how to end it. And I came across Housing First right. model and I was like, well, this checks out. It all makes sense to me. And I did was doing my research. And I found your organization. Right. And, um, I, and it all came to be because I'm actually doing a documentary. And that's what the research began. Doing a okay. documentary about homelessness in America. And so based on the research I was doing for that, that's how I found it. And I was like blown away. And I was like, wow. So yeah. it has a solution. I mean, it's had a solution for a long time. It's uh, sort of uh, dispiriting, I would say, frustrating that it isn't practiced, you know, like we just went through COVID and we spent a year looking for a vaccine and all this research and now we have a vaccine. Now we're going to disseminate it nationally. We have had homelessness for almost 30 years. I mean, I, I, I know you're a young person and many young people think that homelessness came with the urban landscape, but it didn't. Homelessness really started in this country in 1980 
-hmm. right, right about 1980, when the Reagan administration um, began this whole neoliberal politics of supply side economics, which was basically make government small, privatize everything, global trade, you know, export jobs, uh, take down unions, and um, created the beginning of uh, income disparity in this country that is slowly eroding the middle class, mm -hmm. making billionaires much more quickly than any other country in the world. Right. In 1980, we had about five. Now we have like 40, more than any other country in the world. Mm -hmm. so, so the income disparity is huge. And at the very, very bottom are the poorest people. And the poorest of the poor is what we call homeless. Mm -hmm. And it's actually a terrible word to use for people because it makes it sound like they are different people like there's a like a tribe or a or a classification or a diagnosis called homeless mm -hmm. these are just people who are very very poor and and for every person that we see on the street there's a thousand or two thousand also very poor people but they're not on the street because they have friends or a family member that's willing to take them in so really people who are homeless are just representing a much, much bigger class of people than we actually are aware of. We only see the street homeless, but for every street homeless person, you should know it's an inverted iceberg where like there's lots of people right over that person that just haven't fallen all the way down to mm -hmm. being on the street yet. Right. And the pandemic is only making that worse and only gonna continue to make that worse. Um, is that correct? It's totally correct because right now there's been a desperate kind of housing, you know, putting people in hotels, motels. There's also been a rent moratorium. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, people are, millions are losing their jobs. So once the moratorium on, on rent, on evictions, right, the, the moratoriums on evictions, people, the, when the moratorium is off and landlords are collecting, that's going to put a lot more people at risk for eviction than we currently have. And also all the people who are staying in motels are staying there because of FEMA money, federal emergency money, mm -hmm. which expires, you know, in a couple of months and they won't be able to pay those. And where are those people going to go back to the street? So we're, um, there's a palpable other epidemic of homelessness coming. Right. It's really sad. Um, you answered one of my questions already by answering that. But I, so you did a TED talk about housing first um, right. a couple years back. And in your TED talk, you said that we could end homelessness tomorrow if we had the political will and advocacy to change it and make that message known. What specifically needs to change from a politi political perspective to end homelessness? Um, we need consensus mm -hmm. at the federal level okay. because that's where the most of the money is. And we need agreement about what methodology we're gonna to use to end it. Mm -hmm. This is not an abstraction. 
one of the most successful programs in this country, and, and, and we could talk about other countries that have actually ended homelessness and how we can copy what they did so we can do the same thing. Mm -hmm. But we have done something similar for veterans who are homeless in this country. Right. They're, they're probably one of the best initiatives undertaken by the federal government is this thing called the uh, HUD-VASH initiative. It's a, it's a program that's designed to end homelessness for veterans. Congress, you know, in this country, Congress doesn't agree about anything. It's like, you know, they totally split, right? As is the Senate. So we don't have consensus. So one of the things when I was in that TED talk about we need political will and consensus, it means that, you know, the representatives and the Senate have to agree that we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. So there has to be that at a minimum. Okay. That did happen for the veterans because veterans served their country and they were considered among the homeless worthy. See, there's a, there's a moral judgment that goes with people who are poor in this country. And the judgment is that they did something to cause it. They're homeless because they made bad decisions. They are using, they stopped taking their medication. They gambled their money away. I, you know, whatever it is, we attribute individual causality to people who are homeless and hold them responsible. So there's not a lot of room for compassion there. Mm -hmm. With the veterans, because they have served, there was a consensus among the politicians that they deserve to be housed. Mm -hmm. And so they passed a bill, HUD, which is the Housing and Urban Development, the federal agency that basically pays for a lot of subsidized housing, mm -hmm. put aside 70,000 vouchers because there were about 70,000 homeless veterans 10 years ago. And the Veterans Administration put money into the pot for social work and other clinical services because if somebody is homeless, and they have addiction or mental health issues, you're gonna to have to take care of those issues in addition to the homelessness. Right. With, with, with Housing First, you take care of those issues after the person is housed. Yes. With the majority of homeless programs, you're supposed to take care of that before the person's housed. That's, that's how Housing First got to be named uh, as a sequence, you know, it reversed the usual sequence. Mm -hmm. But it's not, it's not so much about that, it's really more about giving people a say-so in their own planning. It's a person-centered approach. And so when we went to the veterans and asked them, what is it that you want? It's like, isn't that obvious? I want a place to live. And, and we had a voucher and case management services. And in 10 years, we've reduced veterans homelessness by some 55 or 60%. There are more than 60 cities now that have ended homelessness for veterans. Completely. So, yeah, zero. So if we want to do it, we can do it. Yes. You know, I mean, we, but we're not doing it for homeless families. We're not doing it for people who are just poor and they have nothing and lost their jobs. We're not doing it for people with mental illness. We're not doing it for other people because we're not sure that they deserve the same kind of benefits, you know? Mm -hmm. That was another one of my questions that, um, in, in another interview I watched that you did, you talked about this Veterans Administration combined with HUD, this, this initiative they did. And 
in New York, they were able to re reduce it, veterans homelessness by 94% using Housing First model. That surprised me. You said 60 cities completely eradicated it. Yes. That's amazing. Well, there's a website called the USICH, US, United States Interagency Council on the Homeless.gov, USICH.gov. Mm -hmm. And they, they actually keep a running list of all the cities that are certified to have ended veterans homelessness. Okay. So what's stopping them from doing that for everybody? Well, you know, uh, different cities have different uh, dysfunctional organizations. You know, not all of the VAs are as efficient. Uh, okay. the, you know, they're just, they're implementation problems, really. Mm -hmm. You know, just um, stupid stuff, frankly. It's just like uh, nobody in charge, uh, not committed to the model, just poor leadership. Poor leadership locally, right. locally. Okay. So back to the worthiness part you said about veterans being deemed worthy. Um, in the interview I did with Doc, uh, Donald Whitehead Jr. from the National Coalition of the Homeless, he was talking about how with police brutality and um, horrible interactions with police officers in the um, neighborhoods that are primarily black, those individuals have the same PTSD-like symptoms as someone coming back from an uh, overseas combat war. So I don't understand, it's not really a question, it's more just a general statement. I just don't understand what makes um, like Black people not worthy of receiving housing because I know that Black people have to jump through a lot more hoops and that Black people make up 40% of the homeless population and only 13% of the United States population. So I just don't, it just, that's something that just bothers me. I wanted to throw that out there. Like, I don't understand how you can deem one population of people worthy and one not, but. We've had 250 years of slavery, Kara. I know, I know. 250 years of lifelong commitment to working for the white man if you're black, yes. just because you're born black. And, and even then, years and years of no right to vote. And even when we had uh, sort of the, 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 in the Jim Crow era, all these African-Americans were leaving the plantations in the streets, especially of the Southern cities, unemployed and having laws that said, if you're wandering around, if you're drinking on the streets, you get arrested. Mm -hmm. And we now have replaced the plantations with the criminal justice system that's incarcerated more than 2 million people, more than any other country in the world, the majority of them black. Mm -hmm. You know, the, ra the racism is in the, is in the foundation of this country. Yes. In the foundation sure. of this country. And, and it, it just continues. Um, you know, somebody goes to the emergency room and if they're white, they'll be treated in a different way than if they're black. The, the assumptions they'll make about how their injuries came to be or why they're using or what they're capable of. It's all stereotyped, you know, from a racially biased perspective. Right. Yeah, it's ridiculous. That's why, so I started a nonprofit organization. It's a 501c3 called the Anti-Homeless Foundation, which the name sounds contrary to what the foundation's actually about, which is- Yeah, it sounds like you're, you're against the homeless. I know, I know. But it's because I named it that because I wanted it to be a staple in in the in history of what our government has done with the anti-homeless architecture. 
Yes. Like putting, I wanted that to be like a reminder that that's what our government did to homeless people. They did, they decided to use their money yeah. to pay for those things instead of actually yeah. helping end the problem. So that's why I named it that. But right, homeless, uh, homeless, hostile architecture. Right. Yes. Um, so, but I want to be focusing on with my nonprofit that the racial inequality um, in housing because like with the whole yeah. red with redlining and all yeah. of that and it yeah. still continues to this day so i a question for you is um what would be a good way to like what how could i best help that that situation because i want to use advocate for housing first as well as yeah. a way of um sort of creating racial equity um i think that i think th i think your best uh approach uh, I, I, you know, there's probably a million approaches, but the one, the one I find most compelling mm -hmm. is to talk to people who have been through it. Okay. You know, to have the voices of people who have either been through a housing first program and it's worked for them, mm -hmm. or to have people who have had repeated experiences of racism mm -hmm. to describe them, you know, in, in detail. Uh, I think that's that stories are you know the best can, can i tell you a story i heard recently about uh, this issue of uh, racial discrimination around yes. the housing yes it was um at my daughter's graduation and uh, corey booker was the speaker okay, okay? senator booker mm -hmm. from uh, newark and uh he was talking about the fact that um he was looking back like how he got to be where he is today Mm -hmm. You know, he started out as mayor of Newark, you know, and, uh, you know, a long story about how his mother never thought he would do well. And she was always like surprised at how well he did. He was kind of uh, worked harder than he seemed to be working. <laughs> so he got he got elected to Congress and uh, and he um, and he was grateful because he had, um, you know, uh, he went to a neighborhood out of Newark, a mostly white neighborhood his parents moved to, and he went to a good school system. Mm -hmm. But he describes how difficult it was for his parents to buy a house in a white neighborhood, you know? And because, you know, they'd be looking at the want ads, they drive to the house, they'd see it's a black family. It's like, oh, sold. Uh, we, just didn't, we just didn't take the sign off, you know? Oh no. We already have a bid on this one. It's like over and over, right? They could not get a house. So they went to this lawyer, this law firm that basically, um, you know, assisted people uh, with bias. Mm -hmm. And the lawyer said, we could do something if you're up for it and we could uh, sort of catch these people at their own game. What they did was they found a white family. I think I think Corey's father worked for like IBM or something like that. Okay. And so they found a white family with the same demographics, you know, two kids, father with a decent paying job and mom and all of that. And they sent the white family to buy. Uh, first, they sent Corey's fa family for the house. And they said, no, it sold, sorry. Then they sent the white family right afterwards with the same demographics and the seller told them of course you can buy this house let's go ahead and go and make a deal unbelievable they're going to the closing okay 
And at the closing, Cory Booker's family shows up with their lawyer and says, either you sell this house to the Bookers or I'm gonna sue your real estate firm for racial prejudice because you turn these people down that have the same demographics as these other people. You can sell it to them now or go to court on Monday because that's what you're facing. That's how the Bookers bought their house, okay? Wow, that's genius. So, yeah, so Booker is now going to Congress, right? I mean, everything worked out well. He's gonna meet John Lewis, okay? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and he is like beside himself, so excited that he's going to meet the legendary John Lewis. Mm -hmm. They made an appointment. Corey goes to Lewis's office and Lewis has this beautiful lunch spread for Corey. And he's like, Corey, I'm like so happy you're here. I'm so happy to meet you. I've been dying to meet you. It's like so exciting for me because you, Corey, are the next generation. You're going to carry the torch. You know, I, I've been waiting for this moment. And it was like this amazing experience for Corey, right? And, and he's, you know, going to like, to the legend and the legend thinks he's the legend. You know, it's, 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 just, <laughs> it's beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. So as Corey is thinking about all, you know, Lewis is the guy who got beat up, you know, in the bridge in Selma, you know, yeah. really badly beaten. Mm -hmm. And so now Corey's a senator and he's thinking about running, you know, for president and he's writing a book about his life story. Mm -hmm. And he says he wanted to interview the lawyer who helped them buy the house, you know, like just to kind of like, who was this guy? I mean, like, you know, I mean, he just wanted to know more about him. He was just a kid at that time. And he wanted, so he followed up, he finds the law firm still there it's kind of like a legal aid type of law firm mm -hmm. but the, but the guy has uh retired or passed away he's no longer there he's no okay. longer, he, i think he died oh. but but the person who founded the law firm is there and so corey says to him what what made you do this you know like what sparked your interest in starting a law firm to represent black families because he's a white guy, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know actually if he was white or black. He started the law firm. Okay. And Corey says to him, what motivated you? And this guy says to him, um, it was a Sunday, he says, I remember exactly when it happened. It was a Sunday afternoon, I was watching TV and they were filming the march on Selma. People were coming across the bridge. And when I saw the police beating people up I wanted to go to Selma the next day, but I, but I couldn't and the march was over, but I couldn't any longer not do anything. I had to do something. Right. And the next day I started this firm to help black families integrate into the community. Oh my gosh. And Corey says, and this was sort of the takeaway of the whole thing for him, because he's talking to this, you know, he's about the class, the graduating class says, mm -hmm. That's why he says one action taken by one person can change the world. Oh my God, that's so beautiful. And you got to see that speech live. Yes. Oh my goodness. Oh, my heart. Yeah, it's a, no, it's a beautiful story of so many things. Wow. 
but it's a uh, you know it's a it's 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 a battle it's a battle Ooh. every day yeah that was heavy but beautiful at the same time okay well i'm gonna ask some more questions <laughs> yeah of course of course yeah go ahead. wow okay so um yeah what inspired you to create the housing first model um it wasn't created like all of a sudden. Yes. Um, I guess the first, the first, like I'll tell you a couple of steps along the way, which is, you know, I, I'm in New York mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to correct something in the bio. I don't know when you want to do that, but you know, that, that's an older bio because now I'm working in Los Angeles. Oh, so the, no, it's okay. The, the Pathways Housing First Institute is in Los Angeles. Oh. Okay. And also, I left Columbia. I'm on the faculty of UCLA, Department oh, nice. of Psychiatry, UCLA. Awesome. So, the, the, you know, these are like just more recent things. Okay. But, but anyway, when I was in New York, uh, I was, you know, I was studying to be a psychologist at NYU. Are you, are you familiar with the city of Manhattan at all? A little bit. I've been here about three years. So, you know, Bellevue Hospital is on First Avenue and 30th Street. Okay. On yeah. the east side. I used to live in the East Village near NYU on like Third Street and Second Avenue and walk to work. Right. And so I was working at Bellevue inpatient. And uh, it was the 80s. And there were more and more people on the street, like people on the street in their Bellevue pajamas. I mean, Bellevue has their own distinct blue pajamas with the branding of the hospital name. It was like, I'm seeing people that I saw in the inpatient service on the street. Oh, geez. So it was not like some impersonal thing, you know, it's like, Frank, like, what are you, what, what are you doing here? You know? Yeah. So I changed jobs to do street outreach instead of working on the inpatient service. I wanted to be on the street, you know, with a van driving around looking for people who are homeless and trying to figure out how to help them to get into housing. Mm -hmm or back to hospital. I didn't know what, but I don't I didn't want to leave them there, you know? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the time we were, you know, all we had was a van. I was working with a psychiatrist and a nurse and we would drive around and we'd like talk to people. People were in very bad shape, but it's like, they didn't want to go to the hospital. They'd just been to the hospital. We, we had no housing to offer them. We had shelters. They definitely did not want to go to a shelter. It was too crowded. They were like, 800 beds, 1,000 beds. They were like big time shelters at that time. Mm -hmm. And so we had very little to offer. Sometimes a drop-in center, you buy them a sandwich or a cup of coffee and talk. And I don't know. I mean, it was like the, the, the mission of the program was like a, a homeless emergency program. Like nobody should die on the street, you know, because there were lots of people freezing to death in the winter getting hit hit by subway cars when they go down to things to try and sleep on their tracks oh, so so the idea was you know like we were an emergency service and most people were not really close to dying some were and we would take them to bellevue you know they were coughing up blood or their feet were oozing pus you know like yeah. they're gonna they're gonna get an amputation we gotta go to bellevue I've seen that when I was homeless I would sleep on the subway and I would see people in those conditions and it was horrible yeah yeah. horrible and frightening and so those you know like yeah. that bad we took them to Bellevue okay? okay but then they would come back on the street you know it's like no plan 
I did that for about four years. And then I uh, got a grant with some people that I was working with to um, basically try this thing called psych rehab, which is rather than me tell you what I think you should do, mm-hmm. you tell me what you need, right? Mm-hmm. That is actually what Housing First is about. It's not about the housing. It's not about the housing. It's about turning over the control of the decision-making to the people you're going to serve. That's what it's fundamentally about. So once we did that, it's like, how can we help you? And the person said, I need a place to live. It's like, okay, let's take you and knock on doors says, well, how long has this person been sober? So well, they're not sober, they're, st- they're still drinking. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we don't take people who are using. Uh, how long has this person been in treatment? They're not in treatment, they don't want treatment, they want a place to live. So we couldn't get them in anywhere because all the programs required treatment and sobriety. Right. So then I did what you did. I got two friends, one was uh, the treasurer and one was the secretary and I mm-hmm. was the president. And we started a nonprofit organization, you know, $35, fill out the application, send it to the state, boom, you know, pathways to housing. And then we got a grant. I wrote a grant for housing and support services. And housing meant we got rent money, okay? Mm-hmm. Rent for an apartment and money for social workers to visit. Okay. And then we'd go to people on the street and we say, okay, how can I help you? Not you want to go to housing. How can I help you? Like it's their choice, okay? Okay. You want a sandwich, haircut, hospital, detox, apartment, uh, apartment, definitely an apartment. <laughs> so that's that first choice is what everybody said. Okay. We would have taken we would have taken them wherever they wanted because what we what I was after as a psychologist was the person not to be a passive patient where things are done to them. I wanted them to begin to feel like just because you have a mental illness doesn't mean you can't make decisions for yourself and you can't have a life. It starts right now. What is the life you want to have? I'm going to help you have it. And so most of the people immediately went and wanted a place to live. And that's how we got to put them in housing. You know, when people, when people can, people were like, there's no way someone with mental illness can survive in an apartment on their own. No way. You Look know? at me, I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah I have right. Bipolar, I have bipolar disorder, I'm fine. <laughs> right, right. And you know what? And, and, and people are surviving with bipolar or schizophrenia on the street. If yeah. you can survive on the subways or in the parks, you know, you can certainly survive in an apartment. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it was like not obvious to people, you know, at that yeah. time. Yeah. Anyway, a lot of risk, a lot of risk and a lot of fear, you know, to give people a chance. Yeah. So um, that's how we started. And then people didn't believe us. You know, we were, we had like 84% success in the first year. And I would go around and like, I thought people should know about this. Everyone should be doing this because we could do a lot on ending homelessness. That's how I feel. (laughs) And it's like, no, I think you're like taking only the easy people. I, I don't believe your numbers. Then we had to do studies. I got a grant to do a randomized control trial. Mm-hmm. You know, we had terrific outcomes, published it in the American Journal of Public Health. And then people started to listen a little differently because then it was like science, you know, peer reviewed. And then it began to really go from no way that this works to, 
hey, could you come here and uh, start a program here? Or could you tell us how to do it over there? So it, there was, after about 10 years, a shift in the no way it works to how do you do it? Okay. All right. How could I help you out the most? What any like, like political activism, anything um, in terms of getting the spreading the message of housing first? Is well, I, I I think I think that, um, and this is a project I actually want to talk to you about, and we can okay. do it after the the okay, podcast. Okay, we'll talk after. Yeah. Uh, but I think that we have to get the word out. That's why I like the title of your podcast and why I agreed to. Uh, uh, I think I think if the public knew, yeah, that there was a solution, and you know, because right now there's we have so many conflicting messages. You know, the shelter people are saying no, no, they need treatment first. No, no, they got to have somewhere to go. No, they need to be clean and sober before. There's like a lot of competition. Yeah. You know, in in the homeless business, I but think they, if we if they get clean and sober, if they don't have a home, and they if they go to rehab, where are they going to come back to? What they, after after they get clean, they're going to go back to the street. They might are likely to relapse. Start, exactly. Relapse. Yeah. yeah. So having the house first, it makes complete sense to me. Like I was like, I hadn't heard of it. Housing first. And when I found out about it, I was like, oh, it was like, it was like an aha moment. Like, yes, of course, yeah. like that, it makes total sense. Yeah. It makes sense to people who have been homeless. It makes yeah. sense to policy people. It doesn't make such good sense to providers because they, think, well, if people can go from the street right into an apartment, what's going to happen to my shelter business? Uh, so in order to bring needs. people, in order to bring people along, the shelter people have to understand that you can actually take that money and turn it into paying for apartments and yeah, supports or reallocate it. It's a transformation strategy. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, how can you help? communication okay. which is housing first works this is how it works it won't put you out of business you're actually going to help a lot more people and also we need it at a completely different scale okay. now because if you have been following the news with the covid yeah. this has been like amazing to me because all these years i've been doing this people celebrate that they build one building oh we're going to get this new permanent supportive housing building, 100 units. We're going to have 100 single people formerly homeless and uh, 50 families formerly homeless. It's like- Out of what? Tens of thousands? Yes. <laughs> like, like, so what? I yeah. mean, okay, okay. No, no, that's good. That's good. But like, we're never getting there. Now, it's no longer homelessness. It's COVID. We have people on the streets that are at risk for infection. They're mm -hmm. going to get sick. We're going to get sick. There's not enough respirators and not enough hospital beds. Let's get these people off the street. The government in California just allocated money for 15,000 hotel rooms. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking ending homelessness. Finally, with the COVID, we're talking about the kinds of numbers that will have an impact. Right. All these years, we're talking 50, 30, 100, nothing, nothing. Now we're talking real numbers. Mm -hmm. we, we should have called it COVID to begin with. We would have been <laughs> done with it. Uh, that's funny. But, but, that's, but that's what we need. We need scale. We need okay. information that it works, A. And okay. B, we need scale. Right. Country, countries have ended homelessness. Finland ended homelessness. Yeah. 
that had 3,000 homeless people 10 years ago. You know, they created a nonprofit that was funded by government, the faith community, the business community, and philanthropy. Huge okay. endowment. They bought 12,000 units of housing. Yeah, it starts, it starts with a K or something? Why? The Y no. Foundation? Oh, no, never mind. I was wrong. I thought Who? that the, the foundation started with the K, the K something. I don't know. No, there's a, it's the Y Foundation, and the guy who runs it is named Yuha Kakakian. Oh, maybe that's where I got it from. I think so. Okay. But anyway, anyway. they have 12,000 units. Yeah. This, this is the model we need to create here. Mm -hmm. Why do you have 12,000 units if there's only 3,000 homeless people? Because in all of those units, you can, of course, house all the homeless people with a rent subsidy, but the other 9,000 units are sliding scale. Some people are paying full rent, some are paying somewhat rent, but with all of that income, it's more than enough to generate revenue to subsidize the apartments for people who don't have money. It's brilliant. It's absolutely it's, brilliant. It's not, a, it's, it's not a for profit, so you're not taking the profits out and giving them to the stakeholders, you're taking the profits and reinvesting them right in the manner. In. Wow. So, no, it's fabulous. And, yeah. and you know what? Like, there's nothing that we're talking about that can't be done. This is totally doable. Yeah, it's there. It, there's a solution, and we can end homelessness. The common misconception is that oh, it's hopeless. Like uh, we're never gonna end homelessness. But that's, that's not what true. I, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. There's yeah. a message problem. There's a communication problem. Yeah. I did an interview with a comedian friend, Vince August. He has this YouTube show called Judge Vinny, and I was we did a homelessness episode, and I talked about Finland and how, um, and I talked about the housing first model and how our government needs to implement it. So I was I was plugging your, plugging your model <laughs> like a month and a half, two months ago. Good, um, good, and, and good. In a, in a real, Hopefully that gets picked up for regular television and then that'll yeah. be spread the message even more. But yeah, um, well, we, we need a consistent ongoing message. We need it bad. Right. Uh, yeah. That's why I want to do this podcast because I want there's so much disinformation and or misconceptions. Yes. I want it all to be focused and I want it to be in control of the questions and, ma yeah. and keep making it about housing first and have it all in one listenable place. So yeah. people can, and then I just need to figure out how to how to market this thing, this yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah. Well, one, one step at a time, one step yeah, at a exactly. time. Yeah, exactly. I just started it, so it's okay. Yeah, good. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations to you, too. <laughs> um, so, yeah, housing a person is actually cheaper than keeping them homeless, um, which surprises a lot of people. How is, yeah. how is that? How is it cheaper? Um, well, it's cheaper for some people, you know, not for everybody, but overall, it doesn't cost any more. What, what happens is that among the people who are homeless, there are some people that uh, are really not doing well, and they end up in and out of hospital, a hospital bed. Even yeah. when I was taking people to the hospital, like 30 years ago, it was $1,500 a day. Now it's probably like $2,500. Yeah. So you go into the hospital, because you have a you know infected foot or pneumonia and you're in there for three weeks, 21 days at $2,000 is $42,000. That's like four years of rent. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. so, so when you look at the people who are going in and out of hospital or in and out of jail mm -hmm. and, you, and you compare that, like if they wouldn't, they wouldn't have been sick had they had a place to live. Exactly. 
So, you know, that's how you do the cost thing. But I, I guess I, I, I have a certain reluctance to uh, say a whole lot about cost because 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 what if what if it costs more does that mean we shouldn't do it you know what i mean it's not like that's true that's you know it's point. like i don't care what it costs it's like for me the most yeah. important thing was will it work that we can put someone with mental illness and addiction into an apartment and if we can do that whatever that is that's worth doing you know yeah. what i mean this and, thing called empathy yeah, and 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 most and most people won't need uh, social work. Most people are just poor. They just need a voucher, mm -hmm. you know, which is what we used to have. We used to have a lot of public housing before 1980, and Reagan took out public housing. It was like, no, I'm, yeah. yeah. So you know, we we totally created homelessness out of a bad policy, yeah. which is still in place today. Nobody's talking about building public housing in this country. Whereas let's say in Europe, there's social housing in every country, like many, many thousands of units of social housing. It's like, so they have homelessness, but nowhere near the per capita rate that we have it, right. you know? And also it's easier to solve because government's committed to building more social housing. Yeah. You know, it's not that complicated, but we don't have the values here. We don't have, we don't have the consensus here. You know, we have the worst case of people dying out of COVID you know, because of the same reasons we have the most number of people who are homeless. You know, there's no agreement. You put on the mask, you're a Democrat. If you don't wear the mask, you're a Republican. It's like, what about the science? There's no science. It's all politicized and just made into the governors won't agree with the president. Texas is opening up today. I saw full, that. Full scale even though at the federal government, they're saying wait and vaccinate. Yeah. So it's like, we're gonna get a splurge in Texas, which of course is gonna affect Louisiana and New Mexico. And you know, it's like, yeah, we don't- Yeah, people are gonna fly to other states too and then and make that those infections even higher. Why haven't we solved public health problems? Because we have a dysfunctional government. Yeah, I agree with you for sure. Okay, um, another question. Um, what policy changes are you guys most proud of at Pathways that have already been implemented? Well, I, I think that uh, there's been a strong adoption, at least lip service, to using a housing first approach at HUD. Mm -hmm. So that, that's a plus. I mean, you have to say that's a plus. There's been a very strong approach at the Veterans Administration with that HUD VASH. That's all housing first. You know, veterans go from the street into apartments. Mm -hmm. That's a that's that's a, that's a very good thing. Also, I think the uh, downside of policy for me is that other than the veterans, none of the other policies have been funded. So that HUD might say you should give housing first or housing with no prerequisites, but they have not put money into programs to start housing first programs. They just sort of encourage people to do it, but it hasn't been funded at the scale that it needs to be to let's house 10,000 people this year, 20,000 people, you know, LA has 60,000 on the street. Yes. If we housed 20,000, 15,000 for five years, we'd be done with it, you know, but no one's talking like that. No one's talking scale. So even though there's like an acknowledgement 
that we have a solution no one's implementing and certainly no one's implementing to scale. Okay. Um, so we're running on in 45 minutes right now. I think we should right. do a part two of this interview. Okay. Is that cool with you? That's cool with me. Awesome. All right. Because I have a lot more questions and <laughs> it was okay. a great conversation. Yeah. Um, Thanks I so wanna, much, Carol. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate it. You have no, no idea how much this means to me that you took the time to talk to me today. So thank you very much. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Have a great rest of your night. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. A special thanks goes out to the man, the myth, the legend, Ice Cream, an amazing music producer, and more importantly, an amazing human being for providing music for this podcast. You can find him on social media and all music platforms at I-C-E-K-R-E-A-M. Thank you all for listening. And in the next episode, we'll be talking with Jonathan Thompson from The Good Seed in L.A. Stay tuned. Guns, but are we after numbers?